Well, good morning again. It's uh, wild, isn't it, to believe that we meet here this morning on the very last Sunday of August. In fact, I think it's the last day of August, isn't it? Last day of the month. So summer is over officially. Children are weeping, parents rejoicing all across the Mahoning Valley. Uh, that's right, I'm getting a thumbs up from Doug Krogan back there. That's right, summers are fantastic, and yet uh, it's, it's fun to get back to, to routines. But we've had a really fun summer as a family. We've done a lot of really cool things together. But one of the unique things, uh, at least for me this summer, is that I have spent an unusual amount of time in western Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't really go out that way a lot over to the Commonwealth uh, into Steeler country, but this summer uh, I spent a little bit more time in western Pennsylvania. We went to Kennywood as a family for the first time. It was the first time we had been there. It was a really cool park, very nostalgic. Uh, I also had to officiate a wedding over in the Newcastle area, so that meant a trip out for the rehearsal, uh, another place for the rehearsal dinner, and then back the next day for the, the ceremony and, of course, the reception. And do you know that I learned something uh, about Western Pennsylvania this summer? You, you may have experienced this as well. Here's what I learned. I learned that there is absolutely no one way to get there from the Mahoning Valley. This, this wedding that I officiated was at a place called SNPJ. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. It's a really nice kind of outdoor facility. It's beautiful. Uh, but I'd never been there, so I, you know, broke out my trusty iPhone. I plugged in the, the coordinates there, and I hit, you know, route. And it came back with, like, five different options. I mean, there was blue lines all over my screen. We could have gone down Route 11 uh, to 14. We could have gone 46 to 165. We could have taken 224 into Poland and picked up 170 and a whole bunch of other fun combinations. But there was no real one single direction uh, to get from here to there. Now, if you've been around here at Old North at all the month of August, you know that we are tackling a little mini-series on heaven, and Pastor Al has already tackled broadly the topics of heaven and then hell, and today we're going to round out that little summer mini-series on heaven by asking a pretty big question and, and answering it in a pretty bold way, and the question is, how do we get there? How do we get to heaven from the Mahoning Valley? Yeah, and even more specifically, we're going to dive into that a little bit more, is, it, is the way to heaven from the Mahoning Valley kind of like the way uh, from Canfield to all the towns of western Pennsylvania? Is it like that? Are there a lot of different roads and routes and twists and turns? Uh, but ultimately, you know, we'll, we'll basically get to the same place. I mean, I don't, I, truthfully, I don't know how we got there even now. We just headed east and we made a bunch of turns. Is, is the way to heaven like that? You know, we just kind of go and eventually we'll get there. There's a lot of different paths. Or uh, is the way to heaven and also the way to be saved more particular than that? Is it, is it more specific than that? Now, this is a, a question and an answer that's becoming increasingly difficult to pin down, even among professing evangelical Christians. Is there really just one way to know God? You might, might remember a few years back, I forget how many years, that Oprah got into this on her TV show with a couple of people in the audience there, and she, she made the statement that this you know, there just can't be one way. You know, that's, that's too narrow. There's no way there can just be one way to heaven. And a lot of people said, yeah, you know, that, that sounds about right. So this is a big polarizing topic uh, for our culture today. Uh, but the biblical answer and uh, the central theme of the morning that we are going to explore and interrogate uh, is that Jesus really is the only way to get to heaven from the Mahoning Valley. Jesus is the only way to heaven from the Mahoning Valley. Now, 
how in the world can I stand up here and make such an exclusive, polarizing, absolute statement that there can only be one way to heaven and, and Jesus is that way? How do I make a statement like that in the year 2014? How can Christians anywhere make this kind of exclusive claim? What are the grounds for this kind of claim? I mean, how in the world can we stand up here with any kind of validity and make that statement? What are the implications of that statement, both for people who do profess to follow Christ and maybe for those of you here this morning that are just kind of exploring the idea of Christianity, asking some questions? How can we say these things? So this is a, a highly relevant topic, I think, for us today. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, I'll give you page numbers and those kind of details later. But because this is such a big issue, this is such a polarizing issue, uh, why don't we pray before we open up the Bible together and uh, then we'll get after it. Father, we thank you uh, this morning for the chance to meet together and, and have a conversation about something that really matters. I, mean, I can confess that so often we get caught in the minutiae of life and back to school shopping and you know, football and other things that are important uh, at times, but, but they're not really eternal matters per se. So thanks for the chance to come together this morning uh, as friends and family and to ask these questions. And we pray that you give us grace as we pursue answers from your word, giving us a deeper uh, conviction that ultimately leads to a deeper sense of character and action as we go today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you haven't walked out on me, if uh, the hair on your arms isn't standing up all the way, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in Acts 4 this morning. It's on page, what page is this on? 912 of your pew Bible. So if you don't have a Bible with you, open one up. Uh, you'll have a lot more fun this morning tracking along through the passage, interacting. Acts chapter 4, it's a really fun narrative that centers around this theme that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to be saved. And as you turn there, just by way of quick background, uh, we're kind of interrupting the narrative midway here. What's happened in chapter 3 is that Jesus, the risen, ascended Jesus, has just healed a guy who was lame from birth through the ministry of Peter and John. And you might imagine that an event like that would, would bring a crowd around to see what's really going on. And so the crowd did come, and then Peter, uh, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, used that as an opportunity to preach the gospel to that crowd that was gathered there. And so this is where we're going to pick up in Acts 4 and verse 1. Peter is, is actually in the middle of speaking. Uh, and as we make this, this first step into the passage, we'll see a, an initial observation. And here it is. that We should anticipate a measure of opposition to Jesus is the only way. Opposition. Whenever we start making absolute claims about eternal reality, you, you better expect to ruffle a few feathers. You better expect some pushback when you start making these, these absolute claims. And so we'll see this in verses 1 to 7. Let's take a peek. And as they were speaking to the people, so meaning Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So we have uh, Peter and John. They are uh, talking to people about how God has provided salvation, even throughout all of salvation history, some nuances particular to Israel, but the need to repent and to turn to God, to turn to Jesus, and all of a sudden, the Jewish priests in this group called the Sadducees come rolling up on them, and I love in verse 2 how it says that they were, they were greatly annoyed. 
You know, think West Side Story here. Think a couple of sharks rolling up on a couple of jets who are messing around in the wrong territory. That's what's taking place here. And, and, and why were they annoyed? Why were they so frustrated about this, this message? Well, because this message of exclusivity, this message of the gospel was a threat to them. It was a threat to their power base and their social standing and their aristocratic positions. This message also really messed around with their worldviews mess with their status quo, the way that they interpreted reality. And when people start messing around and meddling in our worldviews, the way that we interpret reality, uh, we can get kind of ticked off and we can get a little bit touchy about that. And so what do these leaders do? They, they toss them in jail for a night. They toss them into the tank. Now, some Christians across the world actually face opposition uh, exactly like this. I mean, they face intense physical persecution, places like Egypt right now, the Middle East and, and China. And, and we as believers should pray for those, uh, for strength, pray for the success of the gospel in the face of that opposition. But here in the West, here in the United States, opposition comes in a little different forms. It can be a little bit more subtle, it can be a little bit more nuanced, but there is in fact real opposition that we face as people who live in the Mahoning Valley. And I actually listed a few of those things on your outline today. We're going to throw them up on the PowerPoint and, and take just a few minutes on each one and walk through some of the different points of opposition that we can face uh, as believers right here in our context and culture. Opposition to this message that Jesus is the only way. The first one uh, is pluralism. Pluralism is this idea that communicates that we live in a global village that includes a variety of different faith claims. And, and actually, that's very true. We do live in a pluralistic culture. I mean, with the advent of the internet and air travel and the increase of diverse populations in cities, we, we do live in, in a global village of sorts. And, and at its core, that's a very good thing. But one of the, the challenges that comes is when we start to interpret that pluralism uh, in a way that says all faiths, all religions really teach the same things, don't they? And, and if they do, the conclusion is then made that basically all religions are equally valid. They all basically say the same thing and therefore they're all equally valid. The problem here is that uh, this assumption about pluralism is uh, both incomplete and ill-informed. And, and I'll give you just a couple of quick examples this morning. Here, here's one. Hinduism, for example, teaches that there are many gods. Thousands, actually. Tens of thousands. Uh, but Judaism, on the other hand, teaches that there's just one god. So there's either thousands or there's one. That, that's a core part of these two different faiths, and so they're, they're not saying the same thing. Another example, Christianity teaches that God is personal, teaches that God is knowable, and that he makes himself known. But other Eastern religions like Buddhism, for example, and others, uh, do not teach that God is personal. So, so these are opposing things. It's like saying a, there's a such thing as a square circle. You just, you just can't have that. They're not teaching the same things. Now, sometimes I get the, the pushback that, uh, well, it's a common characteristic, really, of two faiths that make them the same. So let's say being kind to our neighbors. In other words, people might pick up on a, a shared characteristic. There again, the problem is that to say that two different faiths share a common characteristic is not the same as saying that they're identical in what they teach. You know, automobiles have wheels, so do shopping carts. But you're not going to see a group of shopping carts parked up on Route 46 to the Canfield Fair this year. Because shopping carts don't serve that purpose. They're different. They're distinct. They're not the same thing. They're not a mode of transportation. So I think uh, in that regard, pluralism does fall short. Another point of opposition, uh, the second one there, is tolerance. This one you've probably heard a lot, right? It's intolerant 
to say that there's just one way. How can you stand up there bigoted, intolerant, saying that there's only one way to heaven? You may have heard that before. The, the problem here when we say tolerance or intolerance is that I think we've really developed a warped sense of intolerance in our culture today. And on this topic, I cannot recommend Don Carson's book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, highly enough to you. It's a really helpful read. And uh, quote Carson here, talking about the difference between traditional or classical tolerance and modern tolerance. He says, the shift from recognizing other people's right to have different beliefs or practices to accepting the views of other people is subtle in form, but massive in substance. And I think Carson gets it exactly right. In other words, intolerance today basically amounts to disagreeing with someone. If I disagree with anything you say, then I'm being intolerant to you. And that's such a silly view of intolerance for a lot of reasons, but one is simply that the idea of tolerance presupposes a disagreement. I don't even have the opportunity to show you tolerance if we agree on everything all the time. And so it's really, I think, a flawed opposition, uh, this idea of what we consider tolerance and and intolerance today. Uh, The next one there, the third one, is relativism. Relativism asks this kind of question. Isn't truth or isn't salvation just a matter of interpretation. Relativism makes these kind of statements. It says the truth is relative, so we cannot make absolute exclusive truth claims like Jesus is the only way to God. I mean, truth is relative. We we can't really know it objectively. We can't know it certainly. Uh, And and I could get going on this one because this is a, a hobby horse for me. I think relativism is the grand delusion of the 21st century. Grand delusion. I'll give you a couple of reasons. First of all, the whole concept of relativism is self-refuting. Let me give you an example. If I make the statement, we cannot make absolute truth claims. There is no such thing as absolute truth claims, like Jesus is the only way to heaven. What have I just done? I've made an absolute truth claim. I'm trying to argue against absolute truth claims by making an absolute truth claim. That's a self-refuting argument. It just doesn't work. The other thing, speaking of it just doesn't work, is that relativism in practice doesn't work. I've yet to meet a pure relativist. Have you ever heard anyone argue against the relativity of the laws of gravity? Never met anybody that's that's made that, well, it's just, it's relative. You know, this, this, this book might fall if I drop it, but it might not. And if it does, you know, the fact that it did is really a matter of interpretation. You say, okay, well, that's science. You can't use science, okay? Have you ever heard someone argue against the relativity of the injustice of, you know, human trafficking or the murder and and mutilation of people taking place by some terrorist groups in the Middle East right now? I've yet to meet a pure relativist who says, you know what, that terrorist, that, that was relatively good for them, so that was okay. I've yet to meet a pure relativist. So, again, I think relativism falls short in this regard. One last point before we move on from these different objections, and, and I want to kind of hammer this home to you, is that as, as reasonable as I think all of those responses are to pluralism, tolerance, relativism, the, the reality, guys, is that we are not going to diffuse every opposition that comes our way, and we need to just be realistic about that. Because remember that this claim that Jesus is the only way to God is messing around with our stuff. It's, it's, it's trying to upset our status quo, upset our worldviews. The gospel messes with us in all the best ways. I have parents and grandparents, I don't know if you've ever tried uh, to take away your kid's iPod or iPad when they're eyeball deep in a game of Minecraft. Try to do that, that work out for you. Like trying to take a baby bear cub away from its mother. 
And you think that, that the whole world is going to fall apart and, and, and you know, they're not processing the fact, they're not reasoning through the fact that you're trying to be a good parent. They're not reasoning through the fact that you're trying to help preserve some of their cells in their brain from burning up and balance their time on electronic devices. You're messing with their stuff. This is what it means to, to communicate this message that Jesus is the only way. It rubs us. It rubs us in all the wrong ways. All right, let's move along here. Peter and John uh, are in the slammer. You get the idea that, that opposition is going to come when we communicate this message. So Peter and John are in jail. What's the next move? Well, it's maintaining a humble confidence that Jesus is the only way. When opposition comes and is going to come, we need to maintain our confidence that this message, even this exclusive polarizing message, really is true. Let's keep going into verse 5 and following. Now, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or name did you do this? It's almost hard for us to imagine the spectacle of this scene. I mean, you've got Peter and John, a couple of humble fishermen, overalls on, being, being dragged before the highest, most religious, powerful aristocrats in the entire world. And they're dragged into this session where they're going to be interrogated and filleted, laid out by the most religious bureaucrats in the entire world. And they look at them and they say, what gives you the right to say this garbage? By what power or name are you preaching this garbage message? This would be kind of like... Uh, taking a couple of ordinary GM uh, assembly line workers from Lordstown, sending them up to Detroit, shuttling them to the GM tower, taking them up to the tallest uh, boardroom, biggest boardroom, most intimidating room, long table, executive suits, three-piece, and they sit down and they look at them and they interrogate them for messing with the assembly system. I mean, that, that's the kind of interrogation that's taking place here. So, how will Peter respond? Well, with remarkable confidence. Let's look at it, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is no salvation in no one else. But there's no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. I mean, there's the linchpin of the entire argument right there in verse 12. Now, the question is, what supplied the grounds for this humble fisherman to stand before this aristocratic group of religious leaders with that kind of confidence? We'll make two observations about that, that grounds. First, our confidence comes from and is grounded in the uniqueness of Jesus. You notice how particular was Peter was about the source of that healing, and then subsequently he bridged that over, uh, the source of all of salvation. Jesus Christ of Nazareth even gives these guys Jesus' address in case they missed it. You know, Chris Drombetta of Turnberry Drive. That's how particular and unique and specific that he gets with this argument. 
And notice he emphasizes the name, the particular name, and, and he makes this sweeping, universal application to the particular name of Jesus. Notice first, no name under heaven. So that's all places, everywhere. The United States, Canada, Great Britain, South America, Latin America, under heaven. That's everywhere. And also, no name given among men. So that's every person, all people, all places. Jesus is the unique means of salvation for all people in all places. And to attribute that salvation to any other name really devalues the name of Jesus, does it not? And I say that, that I love my wife, Sarah Ann, but if I group her in with a bunch of other ladies, it really devalues the special, unique, particular love that I have for her. So it's the uniqueness of Jesus that gives us confidence in the, 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 the boldness of this statement. The second piece, though, is that our confidence comes from the resurrection of Jesus. And this one is huge. The resurrection gives us a particular confidence in a particular salvation. You might have grabbed it earlier back in verse 5. Uh, the reason that the Sadducees were so ticked off in the first place uh, about the, what these apostles were saying, I mean, the text tells us that they were greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were pro proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. And this group, the Sadducees, didn't believe in the resurrection. So if the resurrection was true, their, their entire worldview, their entire case, their platform would, would fall apart. So they were annoyed about the resurrection in particular. It's no accident that they're highlighting there, and Peter mentions the resurrection also in his response. And another key to understanding the resurrection in general as a Christian is that the resurrection, don't miss this, the resurrection fully validates all of the radical, bombastic, ridiculous statements that Jesus made about himself. The resurrection validates that. I mean, we often forget that Jesus would walk around Jerusalem saying things like, I and the Father are one. What? It's blasphemy. He went around forgiving people's sins, receiving worship. I mean, these are the claims that ultimately led to his crucifixion. And so if, if there's no resurrection... All of these claims, self-claims of Jesus to be the unique Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, are malarkey. Here's a Western Pennsylvania word for you. They're, they're, they're ridiculous. He's just another dead Messiah who thought more of himself than he actually was. But if the resurrection is true, do you see what this means? That all of these radical claims of Jesus were actually true. He actually is who he said he was. The resurrection is a giant sign that says, mission accomplished. Jesus really is who he said he was. And the historical resurrection, his historical resurrection from the dead, gives us incredible confidence in, in this exclusivity message. There's no one like Jesus. Totally unique. The resurrected Lord of all, whose self-claims were validated. So back to, the, back to the narrative here. You know, before we get there, I just, just want to point out one thing. You see these two points of confidence up here. Do you see a common thread there? The common thread is that this confidence has absolutely nothing to do with us, does it? When we say that someone is confident, we describe someone as a confident person, what do we typically mean? We typically mean that they're self-assured, right? They know who they are. They're comfortable in their own skin. They exude that self-assurance. Well, a Christian 
is not so much self-assured as they are Christ-assured. You see, Jesus himself does all the heavy lifting and instilling confidence in us. He backs up what we say. He has already written and, and paid for that check. We just, can we just cash it? The account is full. We can make statements like this about Jesus being the only way because he is unique. There's nobody like him. Resurrected Lord of all. So Peter drops this bomb, verse 12, uh, to the religious leaders, tells them they've been doing their theology all wrong. They've missed the point completely. And as you might imagine, there's still a little bit of fight left in these bigwigs, still a little bit of kickback. And so this leads to the third takeaway uh, from this passage in Acts 4, and that's that we should hold fast to boldly speak this message that Jesus is the only way. We just spent a few minutes talking about the inward confidence, right, that we can have in making this claim. Now we're leading to the outward action that we should hold fast to boldly speak this message. Take a look at verses 13 through 18. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded him to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, and it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What a statement. We can't help but speak. You think of the disciples, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of life. When you have an experience with God's grace in the way that they have, when we're filled with the Spirit as Christians, as we put our faith in Christ, there should be this sense that we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's not a duty, it's a joy. And this is so practical. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said, isn't there, about adorning our lives with the gospel, about living out the message that we proclaim, right? We should do that. We ought to live consistently. We ought to walk the walk. And yet, we need to know this morning that people will not glean that Jesus is the only way to be saved simply by observing your life. They might glean other good things, and they should, but the fine details of the gospel can only be known as we talk about them. Read Romans 10. That's Paul's whole argument there in that chapter. We can also affirm this idea of boldly speaking this message uh, right here from Acts chapter 4, just a few verses later. You might look across the page or across the column there. Acts 4.23, Peter and John are eventually reunited with their friends, reunited with the church, and Upon hearing this incredible story, they lift their voices in praise and in prayer. And you might look down at it over in verse 29. These believers pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Again, verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to what? Speak the word of God with boldness. We need to hold fast to boldly speaking this message. Now, longtime uh, pastor and author Kent Hughes 
tells the story about a man named Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was an 18th century Methodist preacher and evangelist. And uh, one day when he was scheduled to preach at his church, uh, his deacons called him in and they, they told him that President Andrew Jackson was going to be present in the congregation that day. And they called him in and told him that because they knew that Cartwright was one given to basically saying whatever he felt like God wanted him to say, regardless of who was there. So they give him this message. It's like, just tone it down a little bit. Just, just blunt the edge a little bit. President Jackson's here. We don't want to offend anyone. So Cartwright comes to the pulpit to preach. He opens his Bible. It's ready to address the crowd, and here's what he says to open. I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here this morning, and I have been instructed to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. The Secret Service people, if they had earpieces, you could see them checking and talking. And, you know, the, the audience was just shocked. I mean, he just, the contrarian in him, just went over the top almost. He spoke hard truth. And so we, people didn't know how the president uh, was going to respond. And uh, after the, the meeting, President Jackson came up to Cartwright and he said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. You know, I, I, the little that I know about Cartwright, I, I can't say that I agree with every nuance of his theology, but this story rings with truth, doesn't it? We need to be bold to hold fast, to tell people the truth about Jesus, to not nuance it, and put you know, icing on top of the cake and all these other things to the point where we don't even really know what we're saying anymore. We don't have to be arrogant about it, and we shouldn't. For heaven's sake, the gospel humbles us into the dust. There's, the ground is level at the foot of the cross as we look at our common sin, our common rebellion against God. This is a work that God does for us. So in no way should we speak arrogantly, but we should speak boldly and confidently, knowing that, that this message, that Jesus is the only way, is a polarizing message. You cannot respond to the gospel with apathy. Not really. It's either going to tick you off or it's going to make you tick. It's either going to cause you to push away and go the other direction, or you're going to go, wow, these are the words of life. This guy really is God. He really is the Messiah. He really is who he said he was. We have to boldly hold fast to that message. One final note here as we think about ways to even apply this idea of speaking boldly. You know, you, you might not have an audience with the president this week, but you do have an audience with somebody, a friend, with a neighbor, with your children, with your book club, with your golf league. Why not ask a helpful question this week uh, that might lead to some kind of discussion around uh, this idea of the gospel? Hey, listen, what we talked about at church this week, can you believe this? Just a crazy pastor, what he was saying? Well, here's some of the things he said. Here's some of the things the Bible says, more importantly. So we need to anticipate opposition to this message that Jesus is the only way. We need to maintain confidence in it, confidence that doesn't come from within but from without the work of Christ. And then we also need to speak boldly, even in the face of that opposition. But finally, we should rejoice in the unstoppable power of this message that Jesus is the only way. We should express praise and thanksgiving to God for the unstoppable power of the gospel. And we see this idea really in the total context of the passage, but uh, especially in verses 21 and following. You might look down at it with me. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This was the real deal. This is truth. This is, 
This is reality coming into focus for people, and that generated this remarkable sense of praise and thanksgiving. I mean, this, this narrative closes with the thing that started the problem in the first place, right? The healing of this guy that was lame from birth, and what Peter does, masterful way, he says, listen, Jesus not only has the power to heal, he has the power to save all people, all places, and this is good news. And God is sure to accomplish the purpose of the gospel. You might remember back in verse 4, we kind of skipped over it earlier, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. The point here, gang, is that God will accomplish his mission according to good, his good purpose and pleasure. And the thought of that, the thought that God is sovereign to fully accomplish all of his purposes in the gospel, ought to make us excited. It ought to cause us to rejoice knowing that God is the one who does the heavy lifting in this process. Jesus is the one who has earned all the merits that we need to stand before God today. I mean, we get into a passage and into a theme like this, and it's polarizing. I get it. And we want to be nuanced in the way to communicate in our culture some of these different pieces of opposition. But, you know, Jesus isn't just the only way. He's also the best way. He's the best way. This is remarkable news. You know that because on our own, we can't make the journey from the Mahoning Valley to heaven on our own. It'd be like saying, I have to walk from here to Moscow. Just, it's not going to happen. It's a journey that we cannot make for ourselves. Our sin, our rebellion against God, our desire to live our own lives by our own terms and our own timing, rejecting God's rule as creator and king, that erects an inseparable barrier. We can't make that journey. We need someone to make the journey for us. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has gone before us. He's blown the doors of heaven wide open. So we now have unbridled access to God's presence through him. And that's the key, friends. Because he not only makes the way to heaven, he is the way to heaven. And so we close with some words from Jesus uh, from John chapter 14, a passage that might be familiar to you. Uh, allow your hearts to hear God's word. Jesus says to his friends, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare that place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I'm going, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas, I love Thomas, he raises his hand in the back row. Go ahead, Thomas. He says, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas realized the gravity of that statement. How do we get there? I don't know the way. Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a famous maze in the gardens of Hampton Court, which is near London. It was built in the 18th century. I saw some really cool pictures of it online this week. The hedges are eight feet tall. It uh, covers about a third of an acre of property, and, and the paths stretch to over half a mile long. And when you come into this maze, there's a lot of different options that you can take, a lot of different paths that you can walk down. Some of those paths lead to an immediate dead end. Others will take you down a little wild goose chase, you think you're getting somewhere when all of a sudden you run into an eight-foot-high British hedge. But one path, and only one, will take you where you want to go, to the center of that maze, 
Friends, Jesus is the one path in a world of high hedges and dead ends. My encouragement to you this morning is to get on that path. If you're not on that path, get on it. You say, well, how? How can I get there? I feel like such a bad person. I feel so inadequate. Well, let me tell you the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you are not responsible for saving yourself. God has done that work for you in Christ. The unique work of Christ, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His powerful resurrection is sufficient to get you there. I didn't even pick up on this from John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. God is faithful to finish what He starts. The way that you get there, the recipe to become a Christian today, if you're thinking about making that step, is simply believing that you don't have it in you, but Jesus has done it. That his work is sufficient to save you. His work is sufficient to get you to heaven. The way that he made, and he is the way itself, believing and trusting that that's true. In combination with that belief, that faith and trust is repentance, which simply means changing your mind and changing your direction in life. Instead of pursuing a life where you really are in charge, you're really the boss of your own life, you turn away from that and you say, you know what, I, I need the blessing of having Jesus in charge of my life. He really is the most important person in all the world as evidenced by his unique life, his radical self-claims, and then those claims as they're validated by the resurrection. He's my guy. That's what it means to become a Christian. Maybe you're here today. I encourage you to do that. And if you're on that path, if you're on that road, I hope and pray today that you've felt a sense of being equipped to anticipate and also respond to that opposition. I encourage you to maintain confidence, not in yourself. You're weak. If this were up to us, we'd be in bad, bad, bad shape. But thank God that he is faithful. Thank God that he is strong. And to know that the confidence that we have comes from him. To hold fast then in sharing the truth about who Jesus is. Even the exclusivity of Jesus. We can have great confidence in that because of what he's done. And in all things, I pray that you rejoice this morning. This is good news. Rejoice in knowing that God is sure to accomplish his purpose in the gospel. The message that Jesus and only Jesus is Lord and King and the only way to heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we take great joy in these truths this morning. They can cause us to bristle and we have that sense of interrogating these ideas. Are they really true? And Father, I'm thankful that at the end of the day we can rest in knowing that Jesus really is who he said he was, who he claimed to be. That the salvation that he provides us is certain. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we can be confident in that, knowing that he has uniquely atoned for our sins. He has uniquely risen from the dead as a demonstration of his own self-claims and also as proof for a future resurrection that awaits those who trust in him by faith. I pray that there would be a sense of encouragement today as we sing, a sense of rejoicing that this isn't only a message, this message that Jesus is the only way that's going to cause a stir, even though it will to some degree. This is also a message of great news. I pray it would cause us to rejoice as your people today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll respond with a song.